briefly pray, a very brief prayer. May I speak and we hear in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. What is Christian leadership all about? What pattern did those authoritative first generation of Christ's apostles leave for those who aim to uh, follow them in the pastoral leadership of the church? Well, that is such an important question for the church to consider. It's essential for those of us who are in pastoral ministry, like myself, to know what we're supposed to be. Because it doesn't take too long in pastoral ministry to discover that there are lots of expectations and lots of voices that tell you what you should be. Psychotherapists, social workers, political activists, religious CEOs. What does Jesus call us to be? So it's important for us who are in pastoral ministry. What about people who are perhaps younger in life and wondering whether maybe God is calling them to pastoral ministry one day? They need to know what to expect. It's vital. And of course, it's crucial for the whole church congregation at large to know what authentic pastoral leadership is like. You know, when a church is advertising for a new vicar, they produce a parish profile which gives a person specification for what they're looking for. And honestly, sometimes you read these documents and you think, basically, the only person they will shortlist is possibly the Archangel Gabriel and maybe the Archangel Michael. Because they seem to want someone with every single conceivable spiritual gift who can do everything and be everything. And things go very wrong when a congregation's expectations are not properly aligned with the apostolic pattern. Either they will get a um, godly leader and chew that leader up, or they will get an ungodly leader who will lead them to their destruction. Either way, it's an absolute disaster. And in fact, that is pretty much what was happening at Corinth. There was a mismatch between the Corinthians' expectation of church leadership and the apostles' expectation of church leadership. So welcome back to 1 Corinthians, which we're looking at this autumn. And um, if you've been here for the last few weeks, and if you're new today, I'm so pleased you're here. You'll soon get the hang of what we're doing. But if you've been here, you'll know that the Corinthians were obsessed with status, and particularly the status of great celebrity public speakers. They loved it. And the new believers carried that obsession with them from their culture into the Christian life. And that skewed their expectations of Christian leadership. So they imagined that Paul and the other apostles and the other co-workers of Paul, people like Apollos and so on, they thought that these people were, these leaders were basically competitors in this public speaking status game. Well, that had no basis in reality at all. But that didn't stop the Corinthians basically taking one or other of those leaders' names and turning it into a status symbol to big up themselves. So famously, as we've seen, some of them boastfully said, well, I follow Paul, whereas others in a superior tone said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm a true connoisseur of Christian ministry. I follow Apollos like this. That was how it went. Well, Paul is addressing this problem of division and status-seeking in chapters 1 to 4 of the first letter to the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians' underlying problem that we've seen in the last few weeks is that they fail to see what Jesus' death means. 
Jesus' crucifixion. What does that mean when it comes to status seeking? Because the point is, the cross puts us all on the same level, and it says to us, we're all sinners. We are all powerless to save ourselves, and we're all clueless how to figure our way back to God. There's only one way that it can be done. There's only one way we can know our creator, and it's got nothing to do with human status, whether it's privilege and birth or education or wealth or race or even, even human goodness. No, it's only the crucifixion of the Son of God that can reconcile any of us to God at all. So there's no place for boasting or pride or for the division it causes when it comes to the cross of Christ. So the Corinthians, in other words, needed to let the cross reshape how they saw themselves. And, to the point this morning, they needed to let the cross reshape how they saw their leaders and how they understood Christian leadership. How should we regard Christian leaders? Well, chapter 4 addresses that question directly. And just before we get into it, by way of personal testimony, um, this passage means a lot to me. I remember clearly it was while reading... Um, John Stott, who many of you will have read his books or heard him preach, and to be honest, I can't remember if it was whether it was reading his excellent little book on calling Christian leaders, it's called, or whether it was hearing him preach it. I can't remember. All I remember is the message of 1 Corinthians 4 as he taught it. That was when I felt the call to pastoral ministry clarified in my life. I was thinking about it anyway, but that it was hearing 1 Corinthians 4, that's what it is. That's, I think, where I'm headed. And uh, so, I don't is there somebody here who's thinking, of, who's thinking this may be where I'm headed one day? Well, listen, perhaps you'll feel that same tug of clarity um, that I experienced um, those years ago. Well, this is a very detailed chapter, and I'm not going to go into all the details. Uh, what I am going to do, though, with us together is we're going to explore four vivid images of pastoral leadership that teach us how to regard Christian leaders. So, how should we regard Christian leaders in the pastoral ministry? Well, first... As servants of Christ. Verse 1. So then, people ought to regard us, uh, apostles and leaders um, who try to follow in their footsteps, they should regard us as servants of Christ. So the emphasis there is on accountability. To whom does the pastoral leader answer? To Christ. To Jesus Christ the Lord. Okay, now that was uh, significant because the Corinthians liked to think that the leaders answered to them. The answer to their expectations, their demands. But no, Paul is concerned about only one person's expectation and that person is Jesus. So look at verses 3 and 4. It, it almost sounds kind of cavalier. It's not, but it, it sounds it. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you. Or by any human court, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So the pastoral leader, in other words, is accountable to Christ. Now, be clear here. Paul is not saying that a minister can set aside all other forms of accountability. Absolutely not. Um, that would be a fool, not a, not a faithful minister that set aside other forms of accountability. But still, the principle does stand. In the final analysis, pastors answer to Christ and not to the church in which they serve. 
They serve Christ for the sake of the church. They don't directly serve the church. Very, very important. And it's both encouraging and it's deeply challenging. Of course, it's, it's encouraging because uh, Jesus is an infinitely more merciful judge than mere human beings tend to be. Um, so churches can chew up their leaders. Um, I've, I've found, I'm not treated to that here, and I'm very blessed. But there are. There are I know plenty of ministers who are. And, and uh, pastors, like any leaders in any sphere, can be misunderstood. It's very reassuring to know that ultimately we are, we, it's Jesus' vision and view that counts. So it's very, very encouraging and comforting. But, of course, it is a hugely sobering challenge because the pastoral ministry, a huge amount of what you do is unseen. And that's something I noticed within the, my first month in pastoral church leadership, I realized this. I, it dawned on me that I could get up at 11 o'clock most mornings, make myself a coffee, have a bit of lunch, and um, basically do very little. You could if you wanted to, and, but, but actually you can't, can you? Nobody else sees all, lots of what you do, but Jesus does. He knows. He would, know, he would have known if I'd been lazing about. I mustn't. He mustn't. Jesus would know, I'd account for it. Why? Because pastoral leaders are his servants. So that's the first thing. How are we to be regarded? As servants of Christ. Second, as stewards of the mysteries of God. That's verses 1 and 2. Let me read on in verse 1. So then, people ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required of those who have been given a trust that they must prove faithful. So the idea of the steward, it comes from, the idea, from a large estate. So the steward would be the one entrusted, responsible with the master's resources, responsible to, to, to give them out, to dish them up, to share them around for the good of the whole family and the whole estate. And in the case of pastoral ministry, apostolic ministry in the church, um, the resource that we are supposed to handle is what Paul calls here the secret things of God, or literally, and as it is in the older translations, the mysteries of God. Now, in the Bible, the word mystery has a particular meaning. In the New Testament, particularly, it's, it's not, it doesn't mean a riddle that no one can ever figure out. It means a truth that was once hidden, but which now God has revealed and unveiled. And so what is the mysteries? What are the mysteries of God in this context? Well, the mystery is the good news about Jesus. It's the apostolic revelation that God gave to his, through Christ, through his apostles, that God entrusted to them, and then through them to the rest of the church in the pages of the scriptures, the New Testament, um, which they delivered. So as pastors then, who seek to follow the apostles, we are responsible to Christ... That's the accountability to him. But what are we responsible for? We're responsibility for dishing out the word of God in the household of God to feed the church. So in the Church of England ordination service, um, when you're um, ordained, the, these words are spoken. The bishop says to those being ordained, a sobering words. He says, remember how weighty an office and charge you are called to. That is to say to be messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord, to teach and admonish, to feed and to provide for the Lord's family. That's the steward's ministry. So, 
You can see from, from this that the most important quality of a steward is, well, Paul says it there, doesn't he? It's faithfulness. You must be found faithful. So it's not flair. It's not pastoral flair. It's not preaching flair. It's not that. It's not brilliance. It's not strategic leadership ability. That is not the essential. It's nice to have those things. But it's faithfulness to the master and it's faithfulness with the scriptures. That is the absolute essential. And the key task for a pastor is to teach the word in a way that the church can understand it. That is mighty clarifying when there are lots of other visions about what the pastorate is about floating around. That is the key task. It has to be. And the key attitude has also, and I'm speaking for myself, it's challenging, is to teach and proclaim the whole testimony, the whole mystery, the whole revelation, even and perhaps especially the bits that the surrounding culture find unpalatable. And even sometimes the church refuses to hear. So the Corinthians, they kind of thought that the apostles were like basically free to weave together speeches that were flattering and brilliant and, and, and charmed their egos. So what a blow to their pride. Paul says, no, um, in fact, your leaders are simply servants of Christ and stewards of a charge entrusted to them, which they are responsible to discharge faithfully. So how are we to regard ministers? Well, here's a third thing, and it might be surprising. As the scum of the earth. Now, that shocking phrase comes in verse 13. We'll build up to it. We'll get to it. Paul's words here, by the way, they're laced with, with, sort of, with sarcasm and with a kind of calculated overstatement to make a point of contrast. You see, the contrast is between basically how the Corinthians saw themselves... How the Corinthians saw the Christian life, how the Corinthians saw Christian leaders, and reality. So the Corinthians were obsessed with status, and they thought that the gospel that they had believed, the good news, they thought it had basically enhanced their status. They thought that they had been lifted up onto a whole new plane of human existence. So look at verses 8 and 9. Pause. You, you can hear the, 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 the emotion in his voice, the irony. He says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And without us, how oh, I wish you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. You see, the Corinthians, we're going to see this over the next few weeks, the Corinthians thought basically that they were exempt from the normal challenges of living for Jesus in a broken world under the authority of the word of God. So we see that, they will see in the next few weeks, they had celebrated bold sexual exploits that they had followed after basically because they had misunderstood Christian freedom. And then we see in later chapters that they had taken a bold, flagrant attitude towards idolatry. And then again later, this very bold, superior attitude to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It all played into an attitude towards themselves which said basically, aren't we marvellous? Very pleased with themselves, the Corinthians. Well, says Paul, you've quite left us apostles behind. Why, while you're reigning as kings, so do you know what we're doing? He tells them, verses eight, 9 and 10, very vivid imagery. He says, 
For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you think you're so strong. You are honoured, but we are dishonoured. It was was their perspective against reality. The the picture Paul paints this is we're we're at the end of the procession led out to die in the arena. It comes from the Roman amphitheatre, picture of a Roman amphitheatre all around you. And um, the the end of the day's entertainment, the highlight of the day, will empty the jails. And out come all the condemned to death, people condemned to death, the, the kind of the human refuse of the prisons and their chucked into the arena to be mauled by animals and butchered by the gladiators. What sport! As the kings sit up in the, in the, in the seats watching the... Paul says, that's us, the apostles, that's us being, being, um, being um, treated like that in the, in the arena. While the Corinthians sit in the crowd, we are those condemned people in the amphitheatre. And then... From the amphitheatre, Paul goes into the kitchen, or to be more precise, the kind of the, the, um, the, the, the drain out the back of the kitchen. Verse 13, he says, we've become, we are the scum of the earth, the refuse, or the, or the word means the off-scouring, you know, the, the stuff that you, you scour off, um, the dirt, the muck. He says, we've become the off-scouring, the refuse of the world. What a contrast to the Corinthians' attitude to leadership. Scum? The off-scouring? Well, what's, he, what's Paul talking about? He, well, he's talking about the opposition, the suffering that came as a result of faithfully discharging his duty as a steward. And so he mentions it in verse 12, uh, 10 to 12. And this is, read the Acts of the Apostles. This is what, what you see. To this very hour, he says, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it, and so on. Now, that is the experience of plenty of believers in this world today, and particularly pastoral leaders. Typically, the pastors and the the bishops and the pastors get picked off first um, in places of persecution. Um, Is it our experience here in the West where, let's face it, in in some ways being a, a Christian minister is in some ways still just about a respected position. We need to beware the respectability. See, perhaps the fact we're not treated like this is partly because we're not as faithful as we could be in declaring those aspects of the gospel that this world does not want to hear. That is distinctly possible. Because the truth is, there is a cost to proclaiming the apostolic message of the cross. Now, be clear it's a wonderful and it is a life-giving message Um, God's infinite love stretched out in those arms of the son of God on the cross welcoming death-bound sinful uh, guilty people and embracing them it's a wonderful message but to proclaim that message you have got to confront people with their sin you with their liability to God's judgment with their destiny to an eternity of separation from God, which Jesus, frankly, calls hell. But for Jesus' blood, that is shed in the place of, 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 of us, that's our future. You preach that to people, and hackles rise. 
course it does. Of course they do. But that's the, that is integral to preaching. It's not the, the bad stuff is not the good news, but you have to mention that in order to preach the good news. It can't be done any other way. So discharging the message Jesus entrusted to the apostles, it involves summoning the world to that message. It involves summoning the world to obey his teaching on self-denial, on money, on sex, and marriage, and so on. And you preach that, and the world will kick you back. It's inevitable. Now, if you're considering pastoral ministry in the future, you have got to weigh that up. That is a reality. Um, it's not the only truth about pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry is the most wonderful privilege in all sorts of ways, and it is an utter joy in so, in so many ways. But the scum part can touch us as well. It is a reality you have to factor in. Um, there will be people, if you go into pastoral ministry, who will think you've wasted your life and thrown away whatever gifts you could have given to the world or your happiness or your, your wealth you could have earned. People will think that. Um, people will ignore the message you preach. In fact, probably the majority of people who hear you preach at different events will ignore what you say and won't listen. Um, and some will kick back. So it's just a reality that has to be faced. It's not the only reality, but it is there. So, what a come down for the Corinthian kings. Kings, in inverted commas. Their leaders were not quite so exalted as they thought they ought to be. Servants of Christ, stewards of his mysteries, scum of the earth. How are pastoral leaders to be regarded? Fourthly, and more briefly, as fathers in the church family. Not father in the sense of authority over, and Jesus rules out that use of the word father. Um, father in the sense of affection for the church. Verse 15, look at those words there. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. He's coming to visit them. He wants to avoid a confrontation, and he, he will confront them if he has to, but he's desperate to avert that need. So he, he warns them in deep family affection. He says, you've got 10,000 guardians. That's revealing. The guardian, that, the word there, it signifies basically a disciplinarian teacher. Like if, if you put a picture of a Victorian governess, you know, you, you don't mess with. That kind of thing. He says, you've got lots of those. And the, the interesting thing is that they basically loved authoritarian leaders, the Corinthian church. They loved authoritarian leaders who would whip them into shape and order them about. Well, Paul has no desire to do that. Any more than a good father wants to discipline his children. A good father will discipline his children if need be. But that's not his instinct. The instinct has got to be to nurture and encourage them. And that is a vital mark of real pastoral leadership. If a leader does not love their church, they should not be doing the work. They can be as sound as you like on the Bible. They can be absolutely down the line. But uh, they've got to be faithful to the scriptures. They've got to be prepared to be unpopular sometimes. But the motive has always got to be love. If there is no love, they shouldn't be doing the job. And, they, the, 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 and so the, the motive must be love. And the manner, verse 21, um, the end of the chapter there, gentleness. It's got to be. So, 
four images that help us to build up a picture of how we are to regard pastoral leaders and pastoral leadership. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, scum of the earth, and fathers in the church family in affection for God's people. Now, all of that basically sticks a pin into the Corinthians' ego. All their ego-driven fantasies about their leaders. The apostles, first of all, were not there to impress them. They were there to serve Christ. They were not there to win crowds with their own unique wisdom, but simply stewards of a message that had been entrusted to them that they had no liberty to change. They were not the shining winners in whose reflected glory the Corinthians could bask. They are the scum of the earth. They are not authoritarian commanders that the Corinthians admired, but affectionate fathers in the faith. Do you notice there how everybody is humbled? That's kind of the point. Everybody is humbled. The apostles and the Corinthians, pastors and congregation, pride has no place. Instead, there must be a shared humility before Christ, whom we serve. A shared faithfulness to the word of God, under which we must sit. A shared embrace of the shame that comes uh, from the world for following Jesus, part of the, the territory. And a shared gentleness in the family life of the church. Put another way, and this to wrap up. The whole of church life must be touched by the cross of Jesus. Pastoral leadership, congregational life. You know, the pride that would otherwise puff us up. The status-seeking that would drive us apart. They're both abolished at the cross. And on the message of the cross, God builds his church. May he build us in that message now as I, as minister here, as others who minister, as we learn these lessons and as a whole church, we observe what it is through Paul and ultimately through Christ and his cross, what it is to be a leader in his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to take these important things to heart and that you would make us healthy in our expectations all around and humble towards you and one another in the name of Christ.